Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I'm Jane Dubman, I'm a journalist at The Guardian and I edit two of our networks. If you're not already familiar with our networks at The Guardian, there are our online sections, we have 15 of them now, where we do content for particular, specific audiences. And so on the Public Leaders Network, for example, we have a membership of 28,000 people who work in public services across central and local government. But the reason that I'm here this evening is because I'm also editor of our housing network, uh, which is mainly aimed at housing professionals. We've had so much to cover over this past 12 months. We can barely keep up. It's been an astonishing time. And when I came to jot down before I left the office, what I thought we might, a few introductory remarks, I put down, what do we think about when we think about housing? And I can tell this is going to be a really good debate because without even mentioning that, in the green room before we came in, these panellists were having a really interesting discussion about what is housing and how it actually works and what do we mean when we think about housing. So I'm like, right, we're all set up. This is absolutely excellent. So that's what we're going to do. Um, thinking about housing, it's interesting that the word has now become, for me, synonymous with crisis. We think housing, we think crisis. And I think this is a really timely debate in a year in which we are going to mark the 50th anniversary of the Foundation of Shelter, uh, Charity for the Homeless. And I think the very fact that we have not solved homelessness, we are still thinking about housing, we are still thinking, we are still seeing huge, still we are seeing amazing pressures on social housing, on state housing, on home uh, renting and so on, particularly here in London but throughout the country, um, really sets the scene for this debate. I hope that we will be hurtling into the future and not just backwards and I'm sure that our panellists here this evening are going to help us untangle some of the knotty problems and give us a fresh perspective uh, on both the, the political landscape and the intertwined issues of social housing, housing design and those issues of tenure and who rents, who owns and who lives where. So without further ado we have four panellists and we are going to start with uh, writer Jack Self who is author of the 2014 title Real Estate Life Without Debt. Jack is a co-curator of the British Pavilion at this year's Venice Architecture Biennale. Jack over to you. Thank you very much. Normally my shtick is kind of about uh, morality and economics and how it relates to housing and architecture but I thought in this case I would do something a little bit different and maybe a little bit outside uh, I tried to double think the panel basically um, you know the future of housing and, and particularly back to the future really set me off along a line of thinking about time travel um, Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie have a great sketch in which they are discussing whether or not Hitler would have been possible in Britain. And their conclusion is that he wouldn't, not because his ideas are abhorrent to the British, in fact in some ways they feel that they're very British, but because of the way in which he spoke. They say that English as a very sarcastic language would not be able to support Hitlerian rhetoric. His fatal sincerity, we would have simply laughed at him. And I think there's something true when it comes to questions of ownership uh, today and housing. There's something very similar, which is if you make a certain type of argument about, for example, uh, communal housing, uh, forms of uh, communitarian life uh, or cooperatives, it's perceived as being um, a kind of socialist utopia. If, on the other hand, you change the way in which that message is presented and you take hold of the sudden 
rise in interest in the sharing economy. You effectively describe the same thing, but through a capitalist lens, and it suddenly becomes palatable. This, in essence, for me, the, kind of, the key to the sharing economy as a concept is basically to describe the idea that sharing is not forcibly uh, a type of uh, uh, compromise or exclusion. The sharing itself can be a form of luxury and can uh, afford you access to things when you need them and without the burden of ownership. And I think this question of not the burden of ownership is very interesting when it comes to housing. You know, things like Airbnb exist precisely because of a disjunct between the not the space in which we live, but really the times in which we live, the way in which we work and the way in which we live through time. Um, and what it suggests is that uh, possession, which means a temporary ownership, as opposed to kind of dominion, which is permanent ownership, might be a superior way to move forward. Um, to give you some kind of practical examples of that, in the West, we always design basically with space trumping time. When we think about things like space standards and uh, we think about um, access and mobility within the home, we basically think of functionalist ergonomics in which the legacy from modernity is that we describe a particular action like washing up and then we basically draw a space around it and we think of all the things that might happen in the house and we put them all on the plan with their all space, right? In fact, if you look at the minimum square meters that are required in a one-bedroom apartment, 53% of that home today is being used for less than 21 minutes per day. So if you analyze that space by time, what you realize is that there's a huge disjunct. Uh, if, for example, we look at a kind of Japanese context in which time is valued over space as a means of thinking, uh, you know, often their plans involve basically just a square room with no furniture depicted in it at all. And the reason for this is that the furniture is extremely light, it's very mobile, it sits on the floor directly and it can be stored, which means that the house has multifunctionality through time. In the morning it's uh, you know, a room for sewing, in the evening it's a dining room and at night it's a bedroom, which conceptually in the West would be impossible. I mean, you can't draw space standards for that. And that's effectively rationalism. It means designing a space that has many possibilities and not a specific function attributed to it. When it comes to the future of housing and this question of time travel and the role of time in how we think about housing, it would seem to me that the, one of the biggest impositions to thinking about the future of how we might design homes is that we very rarely think about time uh, and the occupation of space through time uh, when we're creating regulations and standards, um, and even when we're creating typologies. And so I guess my proposition is, is simply that, that we might begin to consider a time as a primary driver rather than uh, space. And uh, there are many, let's say, consequences of thinking this way, which hopefully we'll be able to discuss a bit later on. Fantastic, Jake. Thank you very much indeed. Our next speaker is architect and development consultant Claire, who for 11 years was at Peabody, but is now freelance. I've been incredibly fortunate to have been a development director at Peabody where I was allowed to add a thousand homes to London uh, with Peabody and that was an incredibly exciting thing. Um, we're in a, at a unique time of growth again in London. London's always growing but city transformations have been led by very different spirits in London's past. We've had the sort of state-led, herbivorous, paternalistic spirit which fueled the post-war housing estates and new towns. But we've also had the market run riot, of course, in the 30s, all the housing there fueled by a very laissez-faire release of, of land and mortgage finance, crucially. 
But we've also had a mashup of philanthropy and hard finance, like uh, George Peabody and other bankers, and their millions basically benefited 19th century workers, but interestingly for quite high rents and on gated estates. But what spirit do we have in London right now at this new time of growth? I would suggest we have a somewhat Philistine and short-term spirit, one which counts the cost of everything and the value of nothing, and let, it lets the market put some rather impoverished built offspring on our city and then walk away. But that's the UK development model. I would just say house builders are not evil. They're simply acting rationally within a rather broken system which doesn't always hold its agents to account. I don't really care who builds our homes, to be honest, but our politicians need to provide land and leadership and our developers need to provide love to enable a fairer and more lasting and beautiful built legacy. So I'm going to just quickly talk about land, leadership and love in respect to Europe and London. I was, had the enormous additional good fortune to spend two months on a train looking at 50 developments in 20 cities last summer and I also discovered a new planet called London and London's actually gone out of orbit. Um, we're waving goodbye to it every day, to be honest. Um, and I want to contrast that planet London and its distant relatives in Europe uh, through those three lenses. So land and its scarcity, or should I say inaccessibility, is of course at the bottom of all of London's problems. And the three most dreaded words in the English language aren't bus replacement service, they're actually compulsory purchase order. <laughs> which, and it's a phrase which conjures up that sort of heavy hand of the state and a violation of the enduring concept of private land ownership and property rights. Um, but what if there's a national emergency? Um, we do actually collectively own a lot of land, all of us in this room, and about 25% of London's land is in fact public. But the planning system, and I'm sure we're going to hear more about this from Richard, is very weak and its provisions for community dialogue, financial transparency and planning gain are frankly unfit as our social contract. This is what I saw in Europe in terms of land. I saw big cities driving the land agenda for everyone. Land is owned by cities or bought, and, if, and it's master planned by them, remediated, sold off in plots to multiple private actors, but not until the wider strategy has been determined. And in matters of development in Europe, it appears that the private sector is serving the public need. I saw billions of euros being spent on this prep work. I saw architects at centre stage named on city websites orchestrating and conducting these large-scale programmes. I saw 50% affordable housing being delivered in major capital cities, both rented and sold. I was really surprised by that, actually, and uh, they're just delivering it with a lot of uh, state funding. I saw lots of shared blocks of flats. I saw self and custom build houses where land has been reserved for those customers and special mortgages exist and grant funding to achieve that. And I actually saw people living in yurts right on Berlin's River Spree, which is like our Thames. Uh, it was unreal, really. Uh, but Berlin's very gradually changing, sadly. So quickly on to leadership. Um, growth and the GLA's London plan is being contested really vigorously, as we all know, in numerous small and really vicious battles all over London, from Kingston to Brixton and from Paddington to Poplar. People deserve a really coherent uh, and clearly expressed public document which communicates what's happening in the capital, why it needs to change, who's benefiting and who's paying. I don't think people can really see and grasp it, and that's why there's so much contest at the moment. And there's no visible public face of this change in London 
uh, where is homes for London? If you, we've got transport for London. If somebody said, oh, I'm sorry, uh, the tube is too expensive, you can't travel on that, you're going to have to walk to work, there'd be an absolute riot. And so uh, why do we accept the same thing for homes? Discuss. Um, and can the mayor please have more power to secure land and raise more funds? I'll just tell you quickly what I saw in Europe around leadership. I saw city centre pavilions and exhibitions where plans came to life, huge photos, maps and models used as genuine public consultations tools, great websites and magazines, uh, publicly employed architects as I've mentioned. Uh, Helsinki had a plan for a fully accessible waterfront stretching from the city centre way beyond the burbs. Um, and I actually saw huge empty sites like former Docklands with walking tours, artworks, all-night music festivals and temporary dwellings bringing life and a sense of actually public participation to building sites and changing areas. And finally on to love. Um, as developers, uh, and I've been in that position, we're leaving at least a hundred year legacy on our cities. Uh, planners can't always control the detailed quality of the output no matter how hard they try, and it's actually our developer community which needs to aspire more, to love its city and its residents more. And finally, what I saw in Europe in that respect, I saw lots of good ordinary architecture built with care and attention to detail by very committed constructors. I sat on balconies which floated on canals, they detached from the homes and they would, I, you could drive them out into Copenhagen Harbour, and that's in affordable housing. I saw public artwork on estates, and I was given a walking guide, and I saw saunas being provided in ordinary new blocks of housing in Helsinki, and generous and richly planted parks completed well before the homes. So to sum up, comparisons can be odious. London's huge, it's a global city, it's got 32 boroughs, but it's got a development system completely driven by speculation. It's not going to change overnight, but the quality of life lived over the channel is demonstrably superior, and we need to campaign for the city we want to see in London. And I'm just going to add a quick postscript, uh, which relates to what Jack was saying. So we've had uh, land, love, and leadership, but there's la différence as well, of course. The Brits are different. They value privacy enormously, I discovered. They cherish suburban lower-density living. That's not the way I live, but a lot of people want to live like that. They don't like sharing and making collective decisions. They want houses, gardens, and pets. Yes, they really do. So apart from the necessary high densities we really do need in town, let's also do some really good suburb in outer London and beyond and do it with love. Thanks. Claire, thank you very much indeed. Which brings us really nicely on, you see how to architect uh, Paul Karakusevich, who has a huge amount of experience working here in this country uh, with local authorities on public housing. Um, Paul, do you want to talk to us about some of the things that you've been doing? I would. Good evening, everyone. Uh, Paul Karakusevich from Karakusevich Carson Architects. Uh, Fifteen years ago, when we set up the office, probably with the exception of Claire and one or two others, no one was talking about housing in London. Everyone was designing lofts in Shoreditch and cool bars and record shops uh, on Old Street, or bits of Selfridges. And um, we had our first studio in Hoxton um, a very long time ago, and across the road was um, approximately 30 acres of Hackney Council land um, and housing, um, at probably some of the lowest densities and probably some of the uh, completely underutilised space, uh, estates that no one wanted to live in, no one wanted to walk across, 
and were, were quite hostile. And at that point, we thought maybe somebody should start looking at housing again after a sort of 25-year break. And we uh, took a very long time, but started to talk to the local authorities about how we could use land more cleverly, how we could build homes that people may want to live in, how we could look at refurbishing some of the very tired blocks that were starting to fall apart. And for about five years, they all of the councils, councils in London said it's far too political. We couldn't even dream about doing that at the moment. And we don't have any money either. Um, that started to change about 2005, 2006. Uh, Gordon Brown was um, rummaging up uh, some ideas uh, behind the scenes and starting to give local authorities the right and the funding to build again. And all we've got here is a, a few examples uh, from over the, the last uh, 10 to 15 years of uh, infill, which we have here, um, which is part of the Mansford Estate uh, next to Keeling House in Bethnal Green, uh, which was working with a community-led housing association and Tower Hamlets Council very closely to create uh, a whole new community uh, working with existing buildings, working with new build, um, filling little pieces of underutilised land for new housing and taking down buildings that um, no one wanted to, to live in. So this is an example here of um, uh, 50, uh, actually over 50% uh, social and affordable housing with a little bit of market sale to help cover the costs in Claredale Street, which is now fully, fully built and occupied. And this led to a series of other little infills in and around the, the estate and uh, the refurbishment of about 400 properties uh, for the existing tenants as well. So um, a nice example of re-taking down um, fairly poorly planned uh, estate housing uh, where, where needed and reconnecting pedestrian-friendly streets for uh, families and uh, local people. A very recent example here in Lambeth. So Lambeth have just uh, restarted their housing programme um, looking at how they can work with residents. Uh, and this is the example on the Fenwick estate. So using three little triangles of land next to the railway um, to create 55 new socially rented homes for Lambeth residents to move into. And as well as that, a, a two million pound uh, new community hall uh, for the wider uh, neighborhood. So th that got planning uh, last night. Uh, so we're expecting that to start on site. Uh, later in 2016 and 2017. An example here of some of the consultation models that we're uh, working with residents on to show them the emerging designs and, and how the buildings are going to be reconfigured or, or designed um, to really ensure that we have almost 100% buy-in from the uh, local local community. Um, in the, in the north of the capital, this is Enfield Council. Uh, it started probably one now one of the most ambitious uh, housing programs in London. Uh, they've got a plan for about uh, 15,000 new homes, all council-led. So just as Claire's mentioning that in Europe, um, cities and boroughs are, are staying in, in control. This is exactly what Enfield are planning. So huge pieces of industrial land that are going to be uh, planned carefully to retain and create extra jobs, but also create a huge amount of housing. And here, um, in order to get some of their estate programs reworking, an example of how we could use a tiny piece of in-between land between a, a new uh, secondary school and a suburban uh, cul-de-sac, and how we could create, um, this is in collaboration with McCrane Lavington, uh, 38 new homes, uh, all socially rented. So it can be done, 
uh, and it's, it's when the local authority stays in control of the process, miraculously they can get much higher percentages of social and affordable housing um, and at a much, much higher quality than I think any uh, private developer could ever, ever deliver. Uh, so that's on site, should be finished in a few months. At the moment in London, there's obviously uh, each borough probably owns between 25 and 35% of its land, and uh, a lot of that is obviously estate land, and some of which are fantastic, some of which are not so great. And this is an example in Hackney, where we are uh, working with another practice, HHBR, on um, a refurbishment of the existing uh, perimeter barrier blocks that were built in the 60s and then creating a new street down the middle with 400 new homes and mixed tenure uh, to reconnect the, uh, the neighbourhood and reconnect into the wider uh, street pattern of Hackney and St Newington and, and Highbury and also uh, create a new frontage onto uh, Clissold Park. So this is uh, on site at the moment. Um, this is what we were sort of inheriting uh, three years ago and very carefully master planned with um, probably almost 100 consultation events, engagement events, workshops with the uh, TRA and the, uh, the residents to create uh, a plan and then uh, designs that uh, everyone uh, would support and wanted to live in. And uh, little images here and uh, this is uh, two weeks ago on site. So this is, again, Hackney Council investing £70 million on its land to build. Um, this is a completely mixed 10-year neighbourhood, uh, and uh, Hackney will achieve 50% um, social and affordable housing across the, the site. Uh, this is uh, where it all started. Just uh, Our first studio was just across the road to the right, and this is the Colville Estate, and just to the north, uh, the de Beauvoir Estate, a huge... Uh, piece of council-owned land by, um, and two very, very um, engaged residence groups. And uh, over the past uh, nine years, we've worked very closely with uh, the Colville uh, Residence Association to develop a, um, an estate-wide regeneration plan to, to build 925 new homes, uh, replace 438 socially rented homes with brand new homes, uh, brand new housing, that will be all socially rented, um, and uh, that is currently uh, we've, uh, we've built 41 so far in the first phase, um, planning permission for the rest, and then uh, detailed uh, and construction drawings just happening now for the uh, phase two and three. Uh, it's phase one, uh, fully occupied, and this is Mike, uh, one of the uh, residents association uh, vice chairs, and he's enjoying his new. Uh, flat uh, about a year ago and uh, then now this is phase uh, two and three uh, they've just demolished the existing homes which um, are in quite a bad state of repair and um, uh, foundations are going in uh, imminently uh, and it uh, will hopefully look like this in a few uh, few years um, Hackney are retaining the entire design team all the way through construction drawing stages and on site to make sure that uh, it looks broadly uh, like the design and um, ensuring that the construction is as good as it possibly can be. Again, they're investing in the second phase uh, upwards of 50 million pounds uh, to create 238 new homes. So huge commitment again from the, from the borough. Uh, these are the two tall buildings uh, which we're working in collaboration with David Chipperfield on uh, and 
the this sort of um, to help the council fund the bigger program, uh, the, the 198 units in these two uh, taller buildings will be sold off to the market. Um, again, the council getting quite a lot of benefit from that, and the the margin and the profit from that small piece of the uh, former state land will pay for the entire uh, rehousing program. So, sort of using the land wisely, creating a mixed neighbourhood, and uh, working with the residents to build homes that. Uh, they all want to live in. And this forms a new gateway into the neighbourhood and also into uh, a newly refurbished um, Shoreditch Park. This is a, a fantastic project in um, Gospel Oak, where we were called about four years ago by a um, three ladies who were forming a residence association there. And they asked, um, well, they were had been working with the local councillors to try and get Camden Council to... Uh, either refurbish or rebuild their estate. It had taken 10 years. And I think they were making headway, and they called us to see whether we could help. And um, that's exactly what we did. So this is going back three years. Um, Camden, have uh, the, the regeneration team, was started, starting to re-engage with housing at the time. And the regen team and the residents worked very closely together um, and with the, with the team in the office to design a new master plan create uh, a first phase of replacement homes uh, for the residents in the two southern uh, courtyard blocks, again through about 150 consultation events and design sessions and uh, workshops in the studio and uh, in the neighbourhood um, to, to really uh, test, test the work and uh, show the residents uh, how their new homes would, would be. Um, we've got, again, almost unanimous buy-in from the residents to be... Um, to, to move into the neighbouring new new homes, and the first phase is uh, just finished. So 100% um, social rent housing on a small apartment building, and um, a row of uh, maisonettes and townhouses uh, with the most exceptional space standards. Um, probably much bigger than any private developer would ever build, uh, but. Um, uh, including time as well, they're incredibly generous, and uh, I think they'll be very well used uh, morning, day, and and uh, and evening. And um, the the space at the back is quite tight, so we've 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 managed to incorporate instead of having a back garden, we've put this most amazing roof terrace on the top of each property, which overlooks the Grade One listed church just just to the south, which a little framed uh, balcony uh, window. Uh, overlooks and then to the rear a similar one that overlooks Hampstead Heath. So again, Camden using their land cleverly, building social housing um, in the right place um, and uh, keeping their residents incredibly happy. And this is, most people look at this and go, well, that must be a half million pound flat. No, it's actually social housing in Camden in 2015. So literally just finished, the residents moved in uh, two weeks ago. Thank you. Thank you. And I saw Richard smile then when Paul mentioned planning because, of course, Richard is um, head of policy at the Royal Tan um, Planning Institute and has a background uh, in the civil service and the private sector and is a planner by trade. Richard, you're going to talk to us about planning. Um, yes, thank you. Um, the Royal Tan Planning Institute is three things. It's a membership society. It's a learned society, a bit like the one we're sitting in, um, though we haven't got such a nice library, I'm afraid to say, and it's a charity <laughs> One of the things that I tend to find in my work on external relations is the continual onslaught of attack on planners by economists. And um, 
we have so much of this that we decided, well, okay, well, we're going to employ some economists to kind of fight back and actually, you know, let's get to the bottom of this because a lot of people in places like Twitter and in the papers say, well, of course, the reason we have expensive homes in Britain is because the planners don't let us build enough of them. So that's the kind of story and, you know, it's all about supply and demand and um, so economists are kind of telling us, giving us marching orders. So we um, have commissioned quite a big work programme. It started with the University of Sheffield and Glasgow on what we call the value of planning. And they helpfully codify for us that there are four things that planning does, um, rather than one, which I'll come on to. The first one is regulating. Second one is shaping. Third one is stimulating. And the last one is capacity building. Now, regulation is what uh, the kind of economists who are kind of in charge of the world think that planners do. The planning is about what they call correcting market failure um, and nothing else. And I won't go into that. Um, uh, I'm more interested in the other things that planning might do, although it does do that first one. I'm mostly interested in the, in the issue of shaping. Um, this is effectively getting development to happen that wouldn't happen otherwise. And I can think of some examples. In Birmingham, we've seen um, the council building council houses in places where parts of the inner city where there'd been no private house sales for a generation. There was no market. And the council went in and built some council houses, not very many. Um, as a consequence, there is now a market in private house building in this part of Birmingham because developers thought, oh, well, they will sell houses, well, maybe we could build some. So it becomes infectious. And then the only kind of negative learning point from that the council had to deal with was the fact that, the, oh, maybe we should have sold the houses for more <laughs> than um, they actually were sold for because, um, you know, the price is now going up. So um, that is shaping markets. Another example on a much bigger scale is the whole question of transport infrastructure. Um, now, the sort of market regulation, market failure kind of people say, oh, yes, and if you're going to build a housing estate, you know, you must make the developers pay for a bus service. Well, okay. I mean, it's a fairly limited ambition, but it'd be kind of nice to have. And, you know, we're hearing about parks. One of the problems is that quite often that promise is made and it takes 10 years before the buses come. But I think you can turn, if you're talking about shaping, you can turn that argument on its head. So instead of saying, well, we'll kind of have the houses and then we'll follow it with transport things or surgeries or whatever, um, our view is that you should, um, you should decide where you're going to make your transport investments according to two things. One, how can you maximize the amount of development that the transport investment will enable? Uh, so put your investment in places where there, are, there is the scope for building basically a lot of homes, but other things too. And then at the same time as you're following that criterion, um, make your investment decisions in such a way that you reduce the amount it costs the public purse to build the transport stuff by uh, maximising the value that is drawn out of the land as a consequence of the development being built. This is absolutely stunningly normal practice in a large number of countries, picking up Claire's point about you know, other places, um, Hong Kong, Paris, world cities do this all the time. Um, and we used to do it, actually, if you look 
mainly before the Second World War and in the private sector, a lot of outer London was built on exactly this principle. For some reason, we seem to have completely forgotten about how to do it. Um, and um, it's only now just beginning to creep back in as a consequence of quite a lot of people, you know, ranting on about how we need to change. So Crossrail 1, taking a London context, was pretty nearly devoid of discussions around um, how it could enable housing and how it could, in, how it could be financed in such a way as to wash its own face. However, you know, that's 10, 20 years on. Uh, the discussions around Crossrail 2 are much more around um, the kind of principles I've been talking about. So that's kind of, you know, we are learning and we're moving forward. Um, there's a thing called the National Planning Policy Framework, which you may have heard of, which is the government's single document for planning policy in the whole of England. Um, if we had another discussion, I might um, want to unpick whether you can have a national planning policy for England at all, which is a different question. But um, in that document, which was published by the coalition in 2012 and is still official policy, um, all over it, it says planners must be positive. Um, and in fact, um, there's a very technical thing which some of you may know about called the soundness test, which I um, w was in a previous life responsible for writing. And I thought it was quite good when I wrote it, but the coalition added, you must be positive. Um, now, what the government seems to mean by this is uh, lean, sort of bend over backwards to give permission to things. Uh, my view of positive is much more around this question of shaping, shaping markets to do things that might not otherwise happen. So I think what we need is not market-led planning, but plan-shaped markets. And finally, um, our, our consultants on this project, which uh, there's a lot more too, but um, I think summed it up very nicely by simply saying that the shaping role of planning is having a successful strategy which radically changes what other people think is achievable. And because in that sense, largely, you know, people with money to invest. So I think I'll leave it there and um, have some interesting discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much. So an enormous amount of food for thought. Where I want to start is in Middlesbrough. Why do I want to start in Middlesbrough? Because today the government has announced the team that will lead the housing regeneration, the regeneration of the sink estates. One of my colleagues said, why is the Mayor of Middlesbrough on this panel? And I said, the reason is this, because Middlesbrough is your go-to place for a place, and I hope, I don't, is anybody from Middlesbrough here? Okay. Middlesbrough is your go-to place at, that is always cited as the place where the council cannot sell off private, its own land. There is no market. It, it is stuck. And that's why the Mayor of Middlesbrough is on that particular thing. Because, and that's why I want to start with Middlesbrough. Because I, I, you know, I've taken the, kind of, uh, the overseas ones and so on. But right here in this country, we have Middlesbrough. Middlesbrough cannot put up tower blocks in order to fund <coughs> social housing. What's your response to that? Um, we, we tried 10 years ago, we were invited up as part, it was John Prescott's 11th, there were meant to be 10 Pathfinder projects, mm -hmm. and he made an 11th, I think they forgot about Middlesbrough, so the uh, 11th Pathfinder was Middlesbrough, and um, it was a, a defining moment in our careers, 
and we were we went up we thinking we were going for a little sort of interview or a chat and we walked into a room like this and he said which Castle Architects will solve Middlesbrough's housing problem <laughs> <laughs> and we'd literally just it was the first my visit my I first visit that, and we said okay well, we've just come in on the train and the, from the main line you, you have a, a 15 minute train ride into the heart of Middlesbrough and it's not a promising entrance into a city and and then two minutes across the road to the town hall and after a year and a half we had to give up if we really, 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 really tried to do something with not even, they hadn't even started looking at their estates. Um, we, we had a tour and uh, the head of housing took us for a tour around the whole city and a lot of the estates. And as we drove into each one, you could hear the, the locks on the car come down mm -hmm. for security uh, because it was, they were the sum of the worst estates we've ever, ever been to. Um, and even even the as soon as a home was vacated because at the time there was a massive sort of depopulation no one wanted to be there so people would leave anyone that could leave left and every single vacant house was wrapped in steel sheet to stop people going in and ripping out anything of any any value um so it possibly was one of the hardest projects we ever we ever tried to deal with um and, and one of the problems with the um, Pathfinder was that as soon as it was announced, fighter alert and speculators started buying up all of the properties in the area very cheaply. And then obviously when the government was going to knock on the door a few months later, they were going, oh, you can have it, yeah, it's 65 grand or 75 grand or 80 grand. And suddenly you'd start to do the calculations and suddenly this land that was up until a few months ago worthless suddenly had a huge land value attached to it because of speculation. So really complex enough to we just we had to give up and I think the council were so so Richard how do, how does planning how can planning help someone like Middlesbrough well I thought you were going to mention because when Mrs Thatcher was converted to inner cityism there's a famous picture of her being there um, you've raised a question of sort of imbalance within the country and um, I mentioned that one of the things that the planning does is um, the sort of incentive kind of thing. We did try for a long time incentivizing in the 60s other regions to develop. Um, I'm a bit skeptical as to how that may work. And so I think the sort of whole nation planning and saying this part is gonna grow and that part isn't, doesn't really work. So. Ultimately, there is a difficult question around places that are struggling economically. Um, I think there is a, an interesting question around whether local authorities in places like Middlesbrough are empowered to do things sufficiently broadly. You're saying this like there's, a, like there's a no money thing. Actually, um, a lot of money is spent in quite a lot of cities in parts of England in the public sector. The difficulty is that it's all in these siloed programs. So you have the health service spends huge amounts of money, but it's all controlled from Whitehall, the possible now exception of Manchester. It's very difficult for a community like Middlesbrough to say, well, actually, with all this money coming in, there may be better ways we can join it up to, to do things for the city um, by sort of linking things together and um, working locally 
if you give us all one big stir it around and make them up with some different solutions. But the difficulty with all these different programs having to report to their political masters here is that that means that your choices are somewhat limited. And I think a, a shaping markets approach in a place with very big challenges may somewhat be helped by more freedom. Well, it will be interesting to see how devolution runs that. And so I was in Manchester yesterday. I seem to be in Manchester an awful lot at the moment, precisely because of that. And certainly it will be very, very interesting to see how that greater freedom, even in a time when they've got much, much less money, actually works out. But it does sort of bring us also to what they're doing in place. I was thinking about Berlin, because obviously in Berlin there was a huge, huge contrast between East and West Berlin, which you can't now sort of see very much, or maybe you can still... You can. You can. But okay, you can. You can see it. But what I mean is there was that imbalance, and they have done some thinking about that, haven't they? Indeed. Um, I'm not going to claim to be an expert on the on Berlin housing, but if you don't mind, I wouldn't mind just quickly touching on the sink estates and, you know, horrible language and so on, the estate regeneration thing. Um, that it is all predicated on cross-subsidy, and I think there is a real problem there because I think unless homes are worth something like £800 a square foot, which in normal people's language is about half a million for a two-bed, actually those new homes that you put in extra don't cross-subsidise uh, all the reprovision you have to do of the social housing. So I think in very, very high-value areas it works, but it's still essentially building new private housing, which isn't to say that some estates aren't in a complete state and need knocking down. Uh, there are a few that are really, you know, struggling in terms of their fabric and so on, and, you know, uh, cities always redevelop, uh, uses change, cities evolve, you know, we can't hang on to everything all the time. But it's only 1% of London's land that's actually being spoken about in terms of what's available to redevelop on those estates. There are so many more programs that, you know, on small sites, brownfield sites, Greenbelt, you know, the, 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 that whole estate regen thing in London in particular is uh, for a very limited uh, set of uh, people and land, really. Just whilst we're thinking about yeah. it, what do you think of the rhetoric? I think it's, it's problematic. I think, uh, I think it's fantastic to invest in trying to help uh, people who appear to have been uh, left behind by the system, but I'm not clear that uh, demolishing their homes is actually necessarily the... It's never been proven by all sorts of research to be the answer to... Yeah, I mean, there's a kind of ideological issue at the core of this kind of Robin Hood strategy uh, in which, you know, you kind of do this trade-off, which is basically that it relies on a constantly rising value of land. Um, and in a way, this is like... I would have thought pretty obviously flawed, but and yet we seem to have been running our housing economy and markets on it for the last 40 years, which is basically the land's going up. In, in the case of the, the projects which were shown where you have this cross-subsidy, it only works in, as was described, in very specific conditions because the principle of it is you've got land, you're the council, you're the local authority, you've got the land. The land's going up in value, so it's increasing. You build this, you sell off a bit, and you use that to cross-subsidize the stuff, which you don't have to pay more for because you own the land. The difficulty with this is that where is that increase in value coming from? You know, who is, who is paying that? Because it, it doesn't come from nowhere. Um, in London, it comes from a number of sources. I mean, it's not even really right to talk about a property market in London because you have you know, maybe a dozen markets running in parallel, some of which have influence on each other, some of which have extremely strange knock-on effects. But in essence, 
you know, that money is coming principally from capital flight, but also from intergenerational debt. You have the baby boomers who were by and large uh, given um, access to large volumes of low-cost housing, which they bought. And then, of course, there's a huge shortage in housing produced as a result, which then, the, as those properties go up, that, that difference is passed on to the subsequent generation. So for my generation, the reason that we can't afford homes is basically because we can't afford to pay our parents the difference between what they paid for the home and what uh, it's worth now. Um, so there's a kind of like ideological flaw in that as far as I'm concerned. But I also wanted to come back, I mean, I was very impressed by these uh, projects that you presented, Paul. There was one thing, I mean, speaking as an architect, there was one aspect to it which really impressed me, which comes back to your point, Claire, which is like, you know, what is a normal home? What do we think of as a normal home? And what was nice about those projects is not everyone had their own front door all of the time. Um, they were not all universally low-rise, uh, low-density suburbia. Um, and, you know, then why do we think that? And, of course, in a way, our conception of home is a conflation, in my opinion, in Britain, of a number of rather accidental factors. First is, in 1535, Queen Elizabeth I, in order to, no, sorry, 1601, uh, Elizabeth, oh, God, no, it could have been the 1590s, actually. In any case, decree... Uh, by Elizabeth I, which said, in order to prevent the, the uh, transfer of plague within the city and diseases, each family must have their own front door. It's, it's very specific. No families can share dwellings, right? And that each dwelling is defined by its front door. And so it's no surprise to me, in a way, that when you go and look at many social housing blocks, particularly the ones that I've lived in, in Battersea and East London, the first thing to get swapped out in these, uh, is, in these buildings is to replace all of the front doors with the Georgian panel door with the sunshine, uh, you know, uh, glazing above it. Because this, in a way, is so written into our DNA as British people that the front door is home. And that's why, in a way, I'm, I'm always very interested by schemes which can propose a vision of home which involves a collective front door. I think the collective front door becomes completely... Uh, uh, metaphorical for the possibility of sharing a household and sharing a life together as a community. Um, and then, you know, just very quickly to wrap up on that, I mean, the two other things to say about what we think of as normal for the home is, of course, because we could not build mass housing in the particularly 17th and 18th centuries, um, in France you get the, basically the house money and apartment block where society is stratified horizontally, right? You know, the higher floors are harder to access, so they're cheaper. In Britain, of course, because we had to build everyone in their own home, we had to build terrace rows. And the logic of the terrace row was designed precisely so that we could rebuild after the fire of London. And the way that that incentive was done was basically to regulate the density of housing per acre into three classes, the top, the middle, and the working class, right? Which is also why we have such a hugely stratified class system in the UK. I mean, it's literally the product of our housing. But the idea behind those three classes of housing was that if you, uh, in order to rebuild the city, of course, there's a huge temptation that people will just build expensive homes for rich people, and that's all they'll build. By creating uh, basically parallel density so that you get as much amount of money per acre for building housing for the working class as you do for the elite, there's no longer, you know, you build the housing that's required in the area, not the housing which generates the most amount of speculative profit. And I think in a way, you know, to come back to this question of time, in a way when you begin to think about it in, in that respect, when you begin to think about 
uh, uh, you know, financial incentives and motivations towards building only one form of housing. That, for me, is the fundamental issue that we're dealing with. And really, in terms of what the future of housing is, there must be a rebalancing of those incentives. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.